John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These are the words of Jesus in the middle of the festival of booths, which is the the eight-day celebration on the Jewish calendar that celebrates the exit or the escape out of Egypt. And every year it was a, a testament, it was a celebration of what God had done and the way that he had protected and provided and cared for his children while they were in the wilderness. Jesus saying about himself that he is the light of the world is comparing himself to the pillar of fire that was in the desert, providing comfort and warmth and security and protection. This is, this is Jesus showing that he is like God, that he is God, and that he is there to protect and to provide for people, especially when it doesn't look like there's any protection available. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. It's a physical reminder of his leading, his guiding, his protection. And this is the place where God's provision is in full display in the harshest conditions. So it's Christmas 1983. Some of you remember this very well. Others may be online watching. I'm going to speak for the people in this room. Everyone should remember that very well. For those online, maybe, maybe this is a, a, something way before your time. But there was a phenomenon that completely transformed the Western world. Completely. 1983. Exactly 40 years ago to the season, over the Christmas season. And depending on how old you are, maybe this is a bit before your time, or, or maybe you, you had an opportunity to ha- get your hands on one of these, these items that caused all kinds of frenzy and, and chaos. Maybe, maybe you're old enough to be a parent during this time, and you weathered the elements and stood in long lines in order to get your hands on one of these, these particular items. Oh, what is it? What could it be? And I'm, I'm, I don't want to tell you what it is that I had to do to get this. Cabbage patch. Uh, everybody knows the cabbage patch doll. The coveted cabbage patch doll. I have to get this back <laughs> to where I got it from quick before, before somebody knows it's missing. This, this uh, odd-looking doll was created back in the 1970s and then for a number of reasons. Part of it was from savvy marketing. Some of it was ridiculously low supply. This little odd doll caused chaos in all of the department stores throughout the entire nation, throughout the entire continent. People were, were fighting, were were uh, biting, like it was chaos in the department stores and it had never happened before. There's a famous clip online you can see of a department store clerk wielding a baseball bat, standing in front of a display, trying to keep the ravenous cabbage patch kid hunters at bay. This is real life, this happened, where grown people were trying to find (laughs) these dolls that would retail for like 18, 20 bucks or something. But then there's a whole other thing that happened. Uh, like, I'm not even gonna talk about the whole like seedy black market that, like, that spawned where you could like go into a dark alley and buy these, these, these dolls. It was, it was a phenomenon that, that wasn't the end. It actually was the beginning 
of what we see even on uh, Black Friday and these big sales and all of these crazy things that happen where people will do all sorts of things to get what they want. We're in the season of stress and anxiety and I wanna, I wanna get the thing that I want more than anything. If you talk to anybody who's gone to a department store or any kind of store on a Saturday or Sunday in the month of December and you, you know the stress that's there. I can remember my last time uh, yes, my very last time going out of my house on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, looking for a few deals. And an elderly gentleman, like a very elderly gentleman, mistakenly thought that I was in his way or, or was wanting to get the same item that he was going to get and wanted to fight me, like, re, like legitimately wanted to engage in a fist fight in the middle of the Best Buy in order to get the thing that he wanted. And it was after that experience I said, I'm gonna do my shopping online, I think. No more, no, more, no more battling the crowds. Well, I don't think that we need to state the obvious that Christmas brings out a lot of the consumerism in people. Like we know that, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. I think we all agree about that. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about uh, how bad it is. I, I think we understand that as the case. But what I am interested in, what I want to talk a little bit about tonight is the motivation behind that. What is it in people that sparks us to, to go to these lengths to get an item, to buy something uh, to have for their children on Christmas morning? I'm reflecting on this Cabbage Patch Kids story, and it makes me ask the question, what is it that, what is it that causes people to do this? especially this time of year. And psychologists point to a number of factors contributing to this and, uh, and, and why it tends to, to be so prominent during Christmas. And one is uh, FOMO, they describe, F-O-M-O. That's the fear of missing out. At the time of year especially, there, there's social media stories and advertising that presents this idea that there's, there's something happening that you need to be a part of and somehow if you don't get there on time, then you'll be, uh, you'll be missing out. That there's, there's this, this psychological thing that happens for some people that somehow they believe that any benefit to somebody else comes at an expense to, to themselves personally. They're, they're getting ahead and I'm not, and I want that as well. So somehow, somehow people feel as though that they're missing out completely. Another, another trigger that happens in people is this, this fierce idea of competition. It, it, uh, wanting to get one particular item before somebody else sparks something in our, the primal part of our brains that is supposed to be reserved just for getting items of survival like food and shelter, that kind of thing, that there's this, this competition switch that goes off in the, in the primal part of our brain that, that gets people to say, no, no, I'm, I need to get this or my life, uh, my life will be no more. And I'm thinking about if you've ever been to a, a store, any store in December on a Saturday, just imagine yourself now on a parking lot, pulling in, you've been circling around looking for a space to land and you find one you don't find it's not there yet, but you know the guys got like they're, they're in their car and then they put the blink the, the lights on that they're getting ready to reverse. You put your blinker on, you're, you're there, you're ready to go in, and then you see another car pull up 
and you're not sure if they see you, and they put their blinker on for the same space, can you like, feel, feel my anxiety as I'm telling the story? Are you there right now? The situations that I have been in where I'm like, how ignorant am I going to have to be in this parking lot to let this person know that I got here first and that is my parking space? The, the anger that can build up in this competition space. And sometimes uh, the issue is about uh, guilt, a deep sense of guilt of not living up to the expectations of your loved ones. There's a, there's a real kind of societal pressure to have to meet the set of spoken or unspoken expectations during the Christmas season. Sometimes they're very unrealistic. Well, all these, these psychological factors, in my mind, point to two main pieces. One is about scarcity, this idea that there's not enough. And the other is uh, self-worth. I'll put it in another way and form them as, as, uh, as questions. The question of, is there enough? Or the question, am I enough? And how might Jesus, we're going to spend some time now, how might Jesus be the answer to all of the questions that we're asking? These two questions. How does he somehow answer this? How does the light of the world address this issue of scarcity and self-worth? I love the, the sentiment from C.S. Lewis when he's talking about uh, his, his belief in Jesus and wanting to be a, a Christ follower. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I can see everything else. The truth is that following Jesus and walking alongside him brings reality or, or what is really going on around us and in us to its most clearest form. That walking with Jesus allows us the opportunity to be able to see things clearly and, and what the need is and if there really is a need. A kind of light that uh, is both making us more socially aware and also more self-aware. That's what the light of Jesus allows for us to experience. Is there enough? Am I enough? Those are the two questions. And we'll start with the first one. And that scarcity is the overwhelming accepted worldview. Our whole concept of economics is based on this premise of a, of, a, of a finite, limited amount of resources available. The idea that there are only a certain amount of things that you can get sparks you to want to move quickly. If I feel as though there's only, only two of the thing left and there's three people, then I gotta be at least second place. But scarcity not only triggers a desire, but it also stirs that feeling of urgency. And depending on how badly you want a thing will dictate what you're willing to do to get a thing. Is there enough is the question. But for most people, I think this has stopped being a legitimate question and has moved into an actual belief that there is not enough, period. The way that I live my life says that there is not enough. There maybe never will be enough. And it's why the default for many of us is to hoard before it is to share. I won't share it here, um, but there's a story of, uh, 
it's, it's a story I used to read to my kids when they were really small at bedtime. You can look it up online. It's all over. It's a fairy tale kind of thing. It's called The Warm Fuzzies and the Cold Pricklies. If you've, been, if you've hung around me long enough, you've heard me talk about this, my favorite. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of scarcity. So I encourage you to take a look, look at that. But the idea of not having enough is, is not God's wisdom. It's not his intention. When we read the creation story in Genesis, we see a world that's filled and overflowing with all kinds of abundance. Everything that's needed for, for, for God's first creation is there more than they could desire. More than enough of everything. And this is a picture of a generous God that gives access to everything until there's a change in thinking. Because the scarcity issue is not actually about having enough resources. But the scarcity issue is a matter of belief. It's about believing that God is not good and that God cannot be trusted. It's, it's a belief that God is holding out on us and that we need to take matters into our own hands. And we see this now because people are struggling more and more, especially these days. And I see it when I go out, if you're at the grocery store, or when somebody's checking the things out and how many things have to be taken off of the bill because there's just not quite enough money. So we see that. We see uh, so many of us are experiencing real lack and real struggle. Yet Jesus draws our attention in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount to the birds. He says they don't struggle, they don't worry about anything, everything is provided for them. Jesus says, don't worry about what's next, but instead he invites his people to trust. Because when we believe the lie that God is not generous, that God is holding back, that there isn't enough, then we have the, the danger of justifying almost anything. If the end goal is to get what I need for me and for the ones that are closest to me, then the ends justify the means in many ways. And, and this results in all kinds of things. At best, it results in bigger storehouses, but, but then to the, the violence or the hoarding. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands to see how many people stockpiled toilet paper in 2020. That was a real thing, which always struck me as odd. Like why, like out of all the things that you can like, I thought toilet paper was a strange, like you're at home, like why don't you, it's a strange, strange idea. But yet the, this, this belief and that there's not enough to go around leads to all of these things, the hoarding, the violence, the clenched fists, the, the short arms and, and the, the long pockets of just wanting to hold on to everything that you have for yourself. And I believe that this, is, this lie is one of the, the main reasons or one of the key reasons why Jesus came to be with us, to show us the absurd generosity of God. to combat the lie that there is not enough. One of the most uh, quoted Bible verses of all time, we all know it when you say it, it's the one that's said at the football games and the baseball games is John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, he, he loved the world so much that he did what? He gave. His only begotten son. His only begotten son. And how he sends his son is is in a way that's so different than what you might expect. 
the son of man coming to earth, not in, not in palace, not in, not in royalty, not in fancy situation, but as a poor refugee who lived a relatively short life, who doesn't have any possessions of his own, and yet made such an impact that we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. And we know the story, and we'll be hearing more and more about this story over the next couple of weeks. We're in, we're in the season. But we see it in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse one, and se- 1 to 7. I'll just read this short little blurb. At the time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Canarius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. This is the time of year for us to be reminded of Jesus' humble beginnings under very stressful circumstances. That he entered into a world that had bought the lie that there wasn't enough to go around. In a world filled with oppression and violence and selfishness in a dirty manger, Jesus was born, grew up, and continued to live this this life of abundance and generosity. He gave both his, his life and even his, um, his life to the point of death on a cross. And he, he lived a life that demonstrated clearly and powerfully that God is not holding anything back from us. The lie that we need to combat is that there is enough. And I wonder what our life would be like, how we would live differently if we, if we believe that to be true. This is an invitation for us, an invitation to live in a way that says that God isn't holding back on us, that, that this light of the world that we celebrate as an invitation to participate in a life that says that there is an abundance. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And it's a, it's a beautiful story we read in John chapter eight that he stands there and makes this bold proclamation. But what's, what's incredible is before he does that is that he's in an encounter with a woman that's caught in adultery. That's the story that comes directly before this, this big proclamation in the temple. He's there with a woman who, who by all intents and purposes <coughs> should be executed due, uh, based on the law. Which leads to our second question. The second question for us to wrestle with is, am I enough? This idea of self-worth. This is a a question that is put to the test during this time of year in the sense that that people feel this immense pressure to have, or at least to appear, to have everything together. One of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that parents would bear the elements to get a Cabbage Patch kid and stand outside in the cold and fight and punch and bite ankles or whatever it is that you need to do to get it. One of the reasons why is is for a deep desire to please their children. Parental pressure is rooted in the desire to meet these societal expectations of providing for your family. 
And guilt can arise when parents feel that they might fall short of these expectations, leading to decisions driven by the need to, to fulfill these perceived responsibilities. The extreme instance of guilt that if you don't have a thing, then you somehow are less than others. Or if you don't do the thing, then you're somehow less than others. And this isn't just between parents and their kids, but it also, it, it does the other way around, kids to their parents of wanting to, to please mom and dad. If, I, if I'm just good, then, then I know that I'll get the approval and acceptance from my parents. But we see it in every relationship that we can think of is this, this performance-based acceptance that says, I need to be good enough in order to receive the love from someone else. In order for me to be loved and accepted, I need to do something. I need to produce something. I need to provide something. I need to make something. That love and acceptance is completely conditional on making other people happy. Is it too close to Christmas to say this? If you can't say amen, you say ouch, yeah? That's all I say. Am I enough? without all of the things, without all of the extras, without being to provide or to perform or to do the things that, that maybe are expected to me? Am I enough taking all of those things away? Becomes the question. And again, for most people, this has stopped being a legitimate question and has moved into a belief. There is no question. And for many people, the, the belief is, I am not enough, period. <laughs> The starting point is at a lack. The starting point is at a deficit. That my value is based completely on my performance. And this is not true. This is a lie. Going back to, to the stories in Genesis, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at just even the way that the story unfolds in um, Jesus' description of the, cre of, or sorry, um, the, the account in Genesis 1 of the creation story. And it's odd that when it's described as, okay, in the first day, Jesus, er, sorry, on the first day, it was uh, the creation. And it was evening and it was morning the first day. And then something, and it was good. And then the next day, and it was evening, it was morning the second day. And it was evening, the morning, and the, and the third day. It's interesting that normally you would think of the evening coming after the morning, that first it's the morning and then the evening and the first day. But there's this interesting twist and I think it's important for us to pay attention to. He says, no, 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 it's the, the evening and then the morning because these people who are just coming from slavery based on uh, living a life that's all about their production. They've been making bricks in Egypt as slaves no days off, no nothing. And God is trying to make a subtle uh, instruction to them and saying, no, 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 your day starts. The first thing you do when your day starts is get ready for bed. There's evening and then there's morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day. This idea of rest coming before anything else, knowing that your value is, 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 is baked into your DNA by being an image bearer of God. That is not based on how many bricks you can make in a day, but your value, your worth is based just on the fact that you share the image of God. 
God says that you have value and that you are enough regardless of what you or anyone else says about it. The gift of God sending his son to earth for each and every person that has or ever will live. I think about anybody who's here or who's listening. What is it that you have accomplished back when Jesus was was sent? What were your list of accomplishments at the time 2,000 years ago, if you can think of those things? Nada. Not a thing. This is telling us something that intrinsically we're valuable about who we are, or we are valuable at our very core. There's this passage in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, talking about Jesus' mother Mary. And, and sometimes we can get weird when we talk about um, Mary, depending on your tradition. Sometimes there's an overemphasis, sometimes there's not enough emphasis. But Mary, uh, Mary is mentioned here in this passage, Luke chapter 1. It says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel, angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Again, we're seeing the generosity of God by entering into a relationship with a nobody. A woman with no status, a humble teenage girl, essentially an invisible person. And the angel comes and speaks to her, sees her and calls her favored or, or full of grace. The word is uh, charis in Greek. It, it, it means to endue with special honor, to, to make accepted or to be highly favored. And we might be tempted to put a, a special uh, anointing on Mary herself. Well, she was uh, favored by God. And maybe some people say, well, she's a saint. So that means, you know, that's, that's why she, she earned this favor uh, from God. And maybe you're right. I won't argue that point. But, but at this point, she hasn't done anything. The scripture doesn't tell us that she's done anything. And God greets her as being highly favored and loved. And this, this word, this description is found only one other time in all of the New Testament. And it's in the book of Ephesians. And Paul's talking in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter one, verse six. And Paul says, so we praise God for the glorious grace or favor or, or charis, this glorious favor he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. And this should arrest us We've already talked about the generosity of God. But with Mary, we see this story. In, in Mary's story, we see his, his unmatched favor. This grace being poured out on her, and we can think, well, yeah, that's Mary. Like, she gets it. But what, what Paul does in this passage that we just read, it's the same word, it's the same idea, but it shows the ridiculous favor that is being poured out is available to everyone. We praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on all of us. And if you grew up with the idea that the only way that you're able to get in God's good graces is to perform, then you've missed the good news of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. 
And I understand that this can be difficult for us to understand. I, I sometimes ha- I forget this truth and have to be reminded of it. It seems too good to be true. But if you have ever felt in your life that you are unworthy or empty or invisible or worthless, then congratulations because you are exactly the kind of person that God wants to put his favor upon, to be gracious abundantly towards. This is what the light of the world has come here to do, to push away the darkness and to change our minds to know that through Jesus, there is enough. Even when there isn't, somehow there is. That through Jesus, you are enough. I'd like to close with Mary's song. This is Mary's response to knowing that she will be the one that carries Jesus. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. And his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. May the God of the universe who became the God of our mess enter our lives in ways that surprise and amaze us. That God would illuminate our world to see where there is abundance in our lives and then prompt us to match it up with the needs that are around us. May we be captured by the simplicity of God's invitation to an abundant life and be blessed with his presence now and always. Amen.